Good to see all of you this morning. We're glad that you're here. If you checked us out for the first time last week because of Easter, uh, we're glad you're back. You probably noticed some assigned seating on the uh, on the on the rows this this evening or this uh, this morning. You're thinking this church is is crazy. They now now we come back for a second week and now we have assigned spots, babe. We need to leave before this gets cultish and there's Kool Aid and all that kind of good stuff. I get it. There was a play here uh, this last weekend. Uh, Friday and Saturday, uh, Mid-Columbia Musical Theater, which is why the stage looks like this, and they'll be here next weekend as well. So it's going to look like this for a couple weekends. Deal with it. So anyway, <laughs> um, we're kicking off a brand new series today called Who Needs God? Inside of your program is a note sheet in case I say something interesting. It looks like this. You can write some things down the back or get the notes texted to you on your phone. And to explain the idea of this series, I think it's going to be a lot like a five-week series. I'm trying to figure it all out, but it's going to be, it's going to be lengthier than kind of a, a, an easy three-part one. It's going to be more than that. And uh, it, it's going to be, it's going to be an argument that kind of builds upon itself. And so if you leave today going, he never even talked about the Bible or um, I, I have so many more questions. That's like the point of this. Consider this like the introduction to a book. Okay. Consider, consider what we talk about today, uh, an effort to get you to come back and hopefully be a part of the whole series and, uh, or listen online or do whatever you need to do. By the way, if you do have to miss later on this series, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. If you go there, you can listen to uh, this message and any previous series that we've ever done. But to explain this series, I'm going to do a quick survey of the religious landscape in America according to me. Okay, so not scientific in any way. It's coming at it from a very limited perspective. I'm 34 years old, so I, I don't know what America looked like in the 1960s or uh, what the religion, all that kind of stuff. All I know is kind of what I've kind of learned through kind of reading and kind of experience for me, but I want to try and offer it to you because I think it sets the tone for why we're going to be talking about who needs God today. School-sponsored prayer was deemed unconstitutional in 1963. So you've got this America that is, is, is pretty kind of religious. That's kind of like the, the, the tenor of the entire environment. And then all of a sudden, there, there begins to be some splintering about or just some um, emerging or some, some, some questions of, you know, what does this really mean for us? So in 1963, they deemed school-sponsored prayer unconstitutional. In other words, a school cannot ask over the intercom, all kids stand up, we're going to do the Pledge of Allegiance, then we're going to pray to God, and then you can be seated and get worried, you know, working on whatever homework you need to be, get doing, right? And then in 1968, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a, in a case called Epperson versus Arkansas, ruled that allowing the teaching of creation while disallowing the teaching of evolution advanced a specific religion and therefore was deemed unconstitutional because we know that the founding fathers, when they drafted the early drafts of the Constitution, put in there 10 tortured words about the separation of the church and state that came out of an environment where a specific religion was forced down their throats. And they said, listen, when we get, when we get to make our own rules, when we start our own nation, um, just like when we started our own church, we get to kind of establish some of the rules. Um, they said, we, we are going to we are going to put in writing that there will be a freedom of religion, not freedom from religion, freedom of religion for people to be able to practice whatever it is that they want to practice. I mean, within reason, I, I get that. I understand that. But freedom of religion, that there's not going to be one state-sponsored or nation-sponsored religion by which we all kind of do this. And so then in, in, the, in the 1960s, even though they had kind of said that early on in the drafting, which is in the late 1700s, all of a sudden in the 1960s, there's going to be some really kind of coming to terms with that. You said that you didn't want uh, this to be forced down your throat. You said you wanted freedom of religion, and yet how you're acting, how it's actually playing out in society, 
isn't actually showing up in the way that you thought it was going to be. And so there, there begin to be this emergence of, yeah, but what about this? What about this? What about this? Right? And then, uh, as far as I know, and, and I was born in 83, but I remember growing up that in the 80s, there was a lot of, um, a lot of public debate or a lot of things uh, uh, talking about the rise of apologetics. Apologetics is not like, oh, I'm sorry for stubbing your toe. Apologetics is defending the faith. So what we saw was a lot of debates about creationism versus evolutionism, and these, these debates were um, on TV. They didn't have YouTube, so it would be on TV or, or um, through like these present presentations at college campuses, and they would bring in famous atheists like uh, a guy named uh, Anthony Flew, or they would books like Bertrand Russell, Why I'm Not a Christian was super popular, and there, there would be this guy named William Lane Craig that would all do these debates with Anthony Flew, and they were kind of, they were heated, but they were like kind of cordial and friendly, and they would do these at college campuses, and they began to be incredibly popular. They were beginning to be televised, and critical writings came out all over the place about a rise of apologetics on both sides of the issues. And the question was, well, who won? It was always dependent on who you cheered for and all that kind of stuff. And yet at that time, in the 1980s, in a religious survey done by the Pew Research Group, only about 4% of Americans identified as atheists during that time. And yet you would have thought, based on the kind of like the, you know, the popularity of kind of all of these things, that it was kind of like a coin flip 50-50. Atheism was seemingly on the rise, and America was kind of just kind of dealing with it or, or, or evolving into potentially another, a, a new sort of thought, Right. And remember, this was pre-Facebook. This was pre-social media. There was no like fake news stories to be able to click and add and share. It wasn't easy to be like, he had him cornered theologically, and they didn't know how he was going to respond, and then he said this, right? And you're hoping that you click on it and see it and read it and all this kind of stuff. That kind of stuff wasn't there. That clickbait wasn't there. So instead, what they did was they came up with books. A really, really famous one that I remember reading and having, or my dad had it on his shelf, was Evidence that demands a verdict. Anybody ever read Evidence that Demands a Verdict or heard about it? A couple of you people have been a part of a church thing for a while. Josh McDowell. And then he came out a few years later, actually it was a couple decades later, with a new book, an aptly titled sequel. Did anyone want to guess on that? New Evidence. <laughs> Super creative. That was like the easiest creative meeting ever. Let's get coffee, donuts, what should we call this? How about New Evidence? Done! Let's do it! So anyways, that was how that worked. New Evidence that demanded a verdict. And the result of that, or the result of the 80s and the rise of um, atheism versus theism, uh, the rise of some of these books talking about apologetics, there was all kinds of Know Why You Believe by Paul Little, all kinds of these, these books that you had to read. I felt super prepared to handle all of the conversations with my atheist friends that I didn't have. And I felt like I could convince them. I felt like I was I was coming up in this, and I, I knew I wanted to be a pastor, so if you're going to be a pastor, you have to read this kind of stuff, and you've got to know these kind of things, because when you get in these debates, you've got to have answers. You've got to have, here's the angle they're going to take, and you've got to counter with all kinds of different stuff. The only atheists I ever met were people who sort of treated atheism or belief or non-belief in a God with almost like the level of a soda preference. You'd be like, you know, you're asking them, it, it, it was so, oh, I'm an atheist, but it didn't feel like there was conviction there. It was like, it was like me asking them, so are you a Pepsi or a Coke guy? And then being like, oh, I'm Coke. And I'd be like, well, I'm Pepsi, and it's, it's a better soda. You know what I mean? And I have reasons why. And they'd be like, okay, cool, go for it. You know, whatever. And I'd feel like, oh. You know, that, that kind of thing, I'd be like, well, I believe in God. Well, I, I don't. Well, I think it's better. Okay, fine, whatever. And I was like, oh, turn me off to it. I didn't take them seriously because it seemed like they didn't take themselves seriously. 
Or option two, if they, if they didn't have like a ton of conviction, because maybe I had limited friends and that, that's fine. Some of you knew me when I was a kid, so that speaks more of you than me. Anyways, uh, was they were tired of the arguments already, right? These things have been kind of hashed out. And uh, when we get together on a Friday night, they're like, can we just play Halo? I, I really don't. I really don't want to talk about this. You know, you believe whichever you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. Then, September 11th, 2001, we all know what happened with that. As that kind of happened, I remember the Sunday after 9-11. Our church was, like, doubled in attendance, and it wasn't just our church. Communities everywhere. America kind of had this revitalization of, well, let's get back to God, and there's all kinds of montage videos with cool music and, you know, whatever. And it was, it was a sad, somber moment, but it was also a kind of a wake, a reawakening, I suppose, of kind of spiritual fervor in America. And churches were packed for like three weeks, probably. And then in the wake of 9-11, do you remember this? Like a, a, a new genre almost of literature came out. Um, a post 9-11 uh, critique of, social critique of cult, culture in the eyes of religion, a re, a, like a, a resurgence of atheism. What was established was basically four authors who self-described themselves as the four horsemen of the new atheism came out with books that became incredibly popular, sold millions upon millions of books, Christopher Hitchens wrote God is Not Great. Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. Daniel Dennett uh, wrote a book called Breaking the Spell of Religion. And Sam Harris, probably the most popular one because it was the closest to 9-11, called The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. Post 9-11, he approached with the manuscript to 12 different publishers, rejected by all 12, finally found one to do it, spent 33 weeks on the top of the bestseller list. Why? Because America is trying to deal with is religion the problem? They watch these religious fanatics of a religion that you know most uh, Americans uh, are not uh, in, are not very knowledgeable out and not affiliated with. Drive some planes into some two towers and, and, and question themselves and go, man, is is has religion kind of worn itself out? Are we kind of like post religion? Do we even need this anymore? Back when we didn't know all of the things that we knew, religion offered some advances and some thoughts and some things that were probably beneficial to humankind, and it answered some questions or provided some resolve or provided some, uh, provided some contentment for people in life. But now that we know, do we really even need this anymore? Is it more dangerous than beneficial? Who really needs God in the culture that we have, in the technological advanced culture that we have, in the way that we've kind of evolved. And I remember, I remember feeling like I should probably read these, these books. Um, not because I, I wanted to believe in them necessarily, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm in that apologetics mindset. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to be a good pastor and youth pastor and going to school for all this kind of stuff. And I even got assigned the God Delusion for, for a research project. You had to read it and then provide some responses to it and all that kind of stuff. So I remember reading the first two and I remember the looks from some of my Christian friends as I'm at the coffee shop, as I'm at Starbucks reading some of these books, and they're like, why are you reading that? And I'd have to be like, I'd have to cover it up with an ESPN magazine cover as I'm reading it. 
And then, I, and then and if they would find out, I, I would talk about how, um, oh, I didn't buy this book. I just rented it from the library because I didn't want to support the publisher. I'm trying to be a good youth pastor again, right? I don't want to buy the book because then they get money for it. But if I rent it from the library, I feel like it's a free pass and I don't have to do that. So I would, I, I, this is true, honestly. Um, that's why I don't own the books today, but uh, I, I did read a couple of them. Um, and what I found in there were scathing critiques of all religion, but a, se- a special soft spot for Christianity, um, because that's the one that most Americans are associated with. And they gave a voice to what a significant percentage of the population was already thinking. We may not now need God. In fact, religion might be the problem. And these authors sold millions and millions of books. They showed up on late night television and they became rock stars on college campuses around the nation. And while a relatively small percentage of the population probably in, in this day and age has actually read these books, maybe you have, that's great. Millions who were already leaning in that direction stepped out of the religious lane and into a lane known as unaffiliated. I don't, I don't know that the impact of those books necessarily drove people towards atheism. I think the impact is greater in a different area. I think it had an indirect impact on the social, uh, or sorry, the religious landscape of America. And I want to tell you a new category that has kind of been deemed for a lot of people. And I, quick warning, just to preface it, it reads better than it sounds, okay? The category uh, provided by Barna Research Group and church books that's kind of been popular in the last couple of years is an affiliation or a category of people known as nuns. Now, the spelling is important, okay? Not talking about black and white, uh, that kind of thing, the, the, the outfits or anything like that. I'm, I'm not talking about monasteries or whatever. I'm talking about N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, meaning this. They are not hostile toward any specific religion, but they're not affiliated with any religion. I'm a nun. I have, I have no, I'm not anti it. I'm not for it. Here's the, cate- here's the interesting thing about this category of nuns. 35% of millennials identify themselves in this category. 35% of millennials, they are left-leaning politically, majority white, majority non-immigrant. It includes atheists and agnostics, but most still believe in God, but are theologically agnostic or, and this is the key word, I think, apathetic. Not pathetic, apathetic. Those are two different words. You've got to be very careful. They get offended when you mess that up, right? Apathetic towards what they believe. Their motto is essentially the unofficial motto because there's no, there's no real, the, you know, there's no a group, there's no nonprofit group called We're the Nuns. They, here's the, that'd be cool though, right? They don't, here's their motto, unofficial motto. I don't know, I don't think it matters. All people are connected. Be ethical, but go light on God. I want to read that one more time. I don't know, I don't really know that it matters. All people are connected in some ambiguous way. The goal is to be ethical and to go light on God. God. They're tired of institutional religion, and they're just, I'm just a nun. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not Hindu. I'm not Muslim. I'm not Christian. I just, can I, but I, and I don't know that I'm atheism, but I'm, I'm just a pass. I'm a, I'm a don't know. <laughs> that could be it too. I, I don't know. But that, that, that can, that kind of an answer says that I haven't done the work to think about it. That feels like I'm marking a box that says I'm lazy, which might be true. But I would prefer to say I'm a nun because I've studied everything. And I just don't know. I just, I feel like Bono. I, feel, I just don't know that I found what I'm looking for yet, right? <laughs> I'm just a nun. That's where I'm at. 
And so today, for some of you, listen, we recognize on Easter, you come out because it's family obligations. The kids are all dressed up. You got no place to go. Brunch doesn't open until 10, so you come to church, right? Totally awesome. And we, you heard tacos, and, and it feels good to come, and, and great. And then you, come back. you came back because we didn't scare you off the first time. It was actually somewhat entertaining. We actually got out on time, and your kids had a great time, and your wife or your girlfriend is like, this is great. We should definitely do this. This is so good for our family. You know, and you're like, absolutely. Let's do it. Whatever. Right. But you, you, you find, you come here and what's going to happen is you're going to get in the car on the drive home and you're going to look across the little car aisle thing or whatever, you know, you have here and you're going to look and you'll be like, he's, I was me. That's me. I just figured out what I am. I'm a nun. I'm, I'm, I'm a nun. You're going to call your mom today. You're going to be like, Mom, I know you're really, like, like so nervous about me and my whatever I believe. And you go to church and you're so religious. You've always been so worried about me. I figured out what I am today. I'm a nun. They're going to be like, well, you know, the spelling's important. You need to spell it out for them, okay? Because they could take it the wrong way. But you could, you could call me like, that's me. I just realized finally what I am. I don't know necessarily what I know. It doesn't matter. All people are connected. Be ethical. And I'm going to go light on God. At the end of last week, I said, listen, if you are around here, one of the things that um, we talked about last week was the you know, ridiculous notion that Easter presents for us every single year, the idea that somebody died but didn't stay dead. And I, I say ridiculous not to mean that it's not true. If, if Don't send me your email. Save your emails. Just go listen to the podcast. You'll hear it, right? You'll hear what I'm, I mean by that. Um, but at the end, I said, listen, I don't know that it's a, I don't know that anybody walks in, hears something, somebody talk about something for 20 minutes, marks a box and says, today is the day that everything changed for me. I think it's, I think it's more of a process over time. And I said, I said, the conversion story, I talked about the conversion story of C.S. Lewis. And he, he like, all of a sudden one day he's like, I think I, I think I actually believe. The problem, not the problem with that, the reality of that type of thinking is that it kind of works both ways. For those who fall into the category of none, for some of for some of you, that's how it worked for you, but in the opposite way than I think I now believe. You would say, at some point, and I can't remember a date, it wasn't like I could point to it and be like, July 3rd, right? I, 2004. I, you would say, I don't know when I stopped believing, but at some point, I realized, I just don't believe. I'm like, not anti-church, not really anti-God. I, I still have an affinity towards Jesus, but it's just, I don't know. I, I just don't know that I actually believe that stuff anymore. I mean, it's great for you, and I, I, I like the ethical nature of, of what it teaches, and as long as you don't go kind of weird on me and the whole God thing, then, then kudos. Great. I'm on board. I might even be a part of a community, but it's solely for the community aspect of it and childcare and free coffee and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know that I actually believe. And the thing that you found is that Eastlake has been a place where we allow this, this freedom of space to be able to be like, well, arms crossed, I'm a skeptic, I don't know what I believe. And we're not like, well, you've got time's ticking. You've got two weeks to figure it out or we need your seat, right? We don't, we're like, no, 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 this is, it's all right, it's, it's fine, it's great. Kick the tires for as long as you need. That's fantastic, I'm, I'm fine with that. But very few people can remember the day that they stopped believing. And in my line of work, I get tons of what I call deconversion stories um, I also get conversion stories, but I, I, I hear a lot of deconversion stories too. I know all of the good ones. And almost none of them end with, so that's when I became an atheist, right? Because it feels like that's a real jump in the opposite direction too. 
people don't embrace atheism as much as they let go of religion. And yet what we found was with the production of these books, with this advance of the new atheism in society and in a post-9-11 culture, what I, what I think happened is that people were kind of disillusioned with church. And it's the church's fault, by the way. People who are nothing like Jesus were incredibly attracted to Jesus, as what we see in Scripture. So um, the church, as not this church, specifically, or the church across the street, or the churches that you came from. I'm not bashing any of them. I'm just saying, capital C, the church has not done a great job because Jesus was incredibly attractive to people who believed some things completely different than what he believed. And yet what we see is this wandering into this state of almost nothingness. And, and, and people might use the words, I'm, I'm kind of an atheist. And I, and I hear these deconversion stories and I, I listen to them say what they left from, and I want to tell them, I think it's more about you leaving Christianity than embracing atheism. You say, I think I'm now an atheist, but you don't really embrace some of the tenets of atheism. You just are disillusioned with church. You walked away from a God that didn't work with the reality that you lived in. So the goal of this series is I want to I want to address that. I want to help enlighten, hopefully, or have a conversation rather than enlighten. Enlighten sounds like I've got something to provide for you that you didn't know that I do. That, okay, this is, this is different. This is, let's have a conversation. Let's, let's focus on, did you really walk away from Christianity and towards atheism, or just simply, I got disillusioned with this? And we don't know the words to say, and so we say, I've become an atheist. But I don't think that you actually believe. I want to walk through a couple of beliefs of atheism and see then maybe, maybe hopefully help you inform me. And I'm not, this is not um, pros and cons against. This is just me kind of stating information as I know it about all of the writings of those four horsemen of the new uh, atheism, right? I remember reading through God Delusion and God is Not Great. And the layout to this, these books, both of these books, and I'm sure probably the other two, is similar to every social critique, right? There are basically three parts to every social critique of a book. One, this part one or section one, is all about here's what's broken in this world. Here's what's broken with this situation, which, by the way, is the best way to write an introduction to any sort of book. Here's what's broken. Can we identify that this, whether it's racism in America, whether it's the incarceration of black people in America, whether it's, uh, whether it's all kinds of the war on drugs, whether it's all kinds of uh, poverty and economic inequality, there's, there's a lot of things that we can point to that's broken. Part one is easy to identify with. We underline a lot in part one. Any good message series that I've ever done, any good message that I write, a heavy emphasis is on piquing your interest, proving to you that this would be worthwhile. And to do that, I establish common ground. Can't we all agree that X, something is taking place? Can't we all agree that something is broken? Can't we all agree that the religious landscape of America is somewhat broken? Right? So that's part one of all of these books, which is super heavily underlined. Great. Number two, part two is here are some facts. Every good book presents a problem. Then it presents kind of facts that we can all agree on or at least have some sort of a scientific data point or something to point to and be like, these surveys were done or this, this is what the history of this looks like. Here, here's some things. And when, when facts are presented, it's tough because there's some certain angles that, that you, know, you can present some and, and not present others. And there's some bias that can enter into this, right? This, this first part was just opinion, but it was emotional. The second part is a little bit more factual. And yet, um, 
when it comes to, to facts, there's all kinds of stuff. And so there's a little bit less underlining, but there's some good food for thought. And then part three of, of each of these books and every good message is, here's what you should do about it. Here's then how you should live. If you believe these facts, if you recognize a problem, believe these facts, then here's what life would look like if you drew things out to their logical conclusion. Right? That's, that's what every good book, every good social critique, every good movie, every, everything leads to, right? One of those things uh, was presented in uh, a book called Christopher Hitchens. Uh, we did a series called Ashes to Ashes. It was a series on death. It was one of my favorite series that we ever did. And as a part of the series, I, I, I bought this. And you're like, you're supposed to not buy those books from Christopher Hitchens' Atheist. It's really small. So I, I felt like justified in doing this. It was... Um, small and cheap. Actually, not that cheap, now that I look at it. Um, he wrote a book because he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. It was stage three or stage four. It was bad. It was, it was one of those deals where it was kind of like an Im, um, imminent uh, coming in. So he's like, I want to write about my death. I want to I basically do a, a diary that's going to be published posthumously, and it's going to talk about how an atheist isn't afraid of death and, and what he deals with it. And so it was a fantastic read, trying to get this mindset of, man, what what would it be like to know that you're going to die and it's going to be a timeline and, and, and to be dealing with some of the emotions of that? So fantastic read, actually. Um, if you want to borrow it because you don't want to pay for it, great, or go on Amazon, you can do that too. But uh, in it, he gets to this spot where he talks about um, his doctors are coming to him and saying, your body is shutting down, essentially. Your lungs are doing this. Your chest looks like this. Your blood count is this. Your in referred to his body parts as kind of the, it's, it's fight, your body is fighting against you, basically, at this point. It's fighting against everything that we're trying to do to attempt to heal this thing. And his response that he wrote down was, quit saying that I have a body. I am a body. It was like this super popular quote from this thing. Don't tell me that I have a body because that insinuates that I have a soul that has a body. I am a functional body. I've led things out to their logical conclusion and I am just a collection of nerves and synapses and brain waves and sending and pain signals and I am a body. That's what I am. He has taken things to his logical conclusion. In fact, when you do this with, with all of these, when you do this with atheism, as it's presented in some of these books, I'm just going to give you a rundown and I'm trying to be on, I'm trying to present a true, clear picture for them, all right? And I, I, I promise you that I'm not trying to be aggressively negative or paint this picture that they wouldn't necessarily paint themselves, uh, that they would say, well, that's not how they would say it. You should read the books and, and decide for yourself. That's fine. But, and so what I'm presenting, these things may be true, okay? These things about you and about me may be true. They talk about an illusion of mind. If you're, if you're a true atheist and there is no God, then, then you're, the idea of you having a personality or a mind or a you doesn't actually exist. There is no soul. You are just organic matter that has sentience, that has developed and evolved into something that, is, that, that can now reason and think, and, and, and you're at the peak of, of, of not only humanity, but uh, creation itself, and we wouldn't, they wouldn't say creation, but existence or material existence itself, that's fine. You're at the highest level of sentience, but there's no you in there. You are simply a body. Listen, he would say this, I don't have a body. I am a body. So any thought of me being unique is out 
the window. You're not really all that unique. It's an illusion of mind. You are chemistry and biology controlled by physics. You are a body. Your kids are bodies. They're simply bodies. Your brother, your sister, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, they are all just physical bodies, and that's it. Right? Now, that may be true, but can you imagine living like that, going home today and looking at your kids as they laugh and play in the yard, and it's nice outside, and they're out on the playground and doing this, and you're like, they're just, that, they're just bodies. I mean, I know there's associating, uh, association because they have my DNA in them, and, and there's all kinds of, uh, of, of science has come up with examples or reasons why we have an affinity towards them and, and affection and all that stuff. I'm not, I'm not passing that up. But when it comes down to it, we're just a collection of nerve endings and brain synapses. We're just bodies. They're just bodies, all right? So that's, that's one. If, you're gonna, if you are going to draw things out to their logical conclusion when it comes to atheism, that's what you have to believe. So when you say, I'm, I think I'm an atheist, then you, then you would say that I'm just a body. Number two, I got to move on. An illusion of free will. There's an illusion of free will. Everything is governed by the laws of physics. There's a belief, it's called determinism. Everything has been determined for you. Everything that you do, everything, every choice that you make is just a product of the environment that you grew up in, that you don't really choose that. You didn't choose your wife. You didn't choose your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, anything like that. You didn't choose this. You didn't choose to come to church today. There were things in your environment that drew you to it. And you're like, no, I woke up this morning. I go, it's nine o'clock. Do I want to go to church? Sure. Brent's going to be there. He's going to know if I missed, right? Whatever. There's all kinds of motivations for you to be able to come, but you didn't actually choose this. This is predetermined. It's just playing out as it is, this is called determinism. This is, everything is just a result of the environment that you have grown up in. Now, Stephen Hawking, we all know Stephen Hawking, or have, uh, have heard, I'm brilliant, brilliant mind, uh, wrote The History of Time. In another book he wrote about determinism, in a book called Black Holes and Baby Universes and other essays. I have it, the quotes on the screen. Here's what it says. I've noticed that even people who claim that everything is predestined and that we can do nothing to change it, look before they cross the road. He even notes the irony in determinism. He's, he's somebody who, he's not dogging it, he's not making fun. You would think that this would be from some religious, you know, person coming from it. He's like, no, 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 I, I get it. I totally understand it. I understand that there's like irony in this, that there's play in this, that I do believe that everything is determined, but I can't help but think about how everybody looks before they cross the road. Even though we believe that that may be the case, we don't often sometimes live like that's the case. Listen, it may be true that everything that you do in your life has been predetermined for you, that everything is just a result and it's all playing out as it was supposed to play out. And it's all just physics and it's all just brain signals. Totally, it totally could be true, absolutely. But man, it would be tough to live like that, wouldn't it? To think about, I don't really have free will. Okay, I gotta move on. Number three, an illusion of value. In a world governed by the laws of physics, there's no inherent or actual value. There's only ascribed or assigned value. The value of money, people, and character has been assigned to us as a culture, but they don't have any inherent value. Our culture has determined that life is precious, and that's fine, but 
know that that's a social construct, not something that you were born with. Our, our culture has determined that a piece of paper with a dead president on it, um, it has monetary value that can be exchanged for goods or services. That's fine, but that's an ascribed value. There's no inherent value in anything that has been created or, or that, it, again, I'm using created words, but anything that exists. Everything is just a social construct in this way. And it's not uncommon for us to, in our culture, especially in today's uh, culture, to hear phrases like, you have truth, I have truth, you do you, and let me do me. That's totally fine. There's a scribe value when it comes to truth. I totally understand that. I get it. It becomes a little bit more difficult when it comes to the area of justice. I have my justice, you have your justice. Um, don't let your justice or your sense of justice interfere with my sense of justice. It becomes a little bit more difficult when I say, uh, you shouldn't do that. It, it, it appeals to a, um, a value of ethics that is supposed to maybe undermine all of us if we're going to exist in social community, and yet you're not supposed to do that because there's no inherent value in this. There's no ascribed value. It's all just been constructed to you so we can come up with whatever rules that we want. And justice then begins to be a big, giant question mark. The sense of ought, the sense of ought not. Again, these things may be true. Absolutely. They may be true. But man, it would be really hard to live like that, wouldn't it? And I know you're sitting there, you're watching this, or you're listening to this, or whatever, and you're like, well, wait a second. I don't believe in God, but I don't, I wouldn't align myself with all those things. I don't believe in God because, you know, it, that's weird. But, but this feels like I have jumped out of the kettle and jumped into the fire or whatever that phrase is, right? I, I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would assign myself to these things. Then my response to that would be, well, then maybe you're really not an atheist or maybe just not a good one because that's what they would say is following things to their logical conclusion, this is what you would need to believe in all of these things. Or maybe, what if maybe instead you just don't believe in the God that you grew up with? Maybe the answer is not that you've embraced atheism, but maybe you are anti or don't believe in a God that was presented to you or told to you by somebody, somebody like me, but probably dressed nicer in, in a cooler church, who told you about God, and you're like, that version of God doesn't match up with the reality that I have. Listen, if you have lost faith in God or are losing faith in God, my bet, my hunch, is that it has nothing to do with any of this, that you read all of this and be like, see, there's that stuff that I value. That's hope for me. That's what I want. My bet is it had nothing to do with this. It was probably a lot more personal than that. It's not that you have this new infatuation with atheism as much as theism has lost its sheen and the version of Christianity that you grew up with has lost its appeal. And maybe, just maybe, you've lost or are losing faith in God. And for the next three, four, five weeks or whatever, my goal, I, I want to... I'm going to do my best, my very best to convince you, if you'll give me the chance, to show you that the God that you're losing faith in, what if that God never really existed in the first place? 
What if that's not really, I don't believe in God. Well, maybe I don't believe in that God either. (laughs) As arrogant as this may sound, perhaps you had the wrong God. Perhaps the God you thought you believed in actually does not exist. And my purpose today was to shine a light on the alternative um, as it's presented best by the people who have written the most books and made the most money on the new atheism and said, well, this is what atheism looks like in the 21st century. Okay, here's your alternative option. And these things, again, they may be true. I, I, I really don't want to sound like, you know, they're so much smarter than me. If we got in a debate on stage, I would lose, okay? I would absolutely, I would make jokes because that's my, that's my little default. And you'd probably laugh at me and be like, man, you're so funny. But they crushed you in terms of reason and logic. Totally. It may be true that everything is an illusion of mine. It may be true that you and I have no inherent value and neither do your kids and neither does anybody else that you love. It may be possible that there's no real basis, ethical basis for justice. It's possible that all of it is just an illusion of our mind and that there's no real you, that you are, you don't have a body, but you just are one. It's possible. Here's what I know about most of us, though, probably. We hope not. It may be true, but we kind of hope it's not true. We kind of hope that there's something more. There's something in you and there's something in me that there hopes that there's something more. We hope we are more. But our only hope for that hope is God. So the question that this series presents, the one that I leave you with as you go into your week and get back to reality is this, who needs God? And perhaps the answer is that we all do. We all do. Because what's the alternative? Right? Let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, this sort of information, this challenge, it felt like maybe like a drinking from a fire hose today and it wasn't as funny as last week. And it's, it's challenging and uh, it addresses some areas of our life that we kind of thought we'd have settled by now. And, and now we're forced to kind of relook at this and we've got some barriers and preconceptions about faith and religion and Jesus and all that kind of stuff. I pray that you would mess with us this week mess with all of our minds, mess, mess with those of us who consider ourselves to be Christians that we sat there and really didn't think, well, this series isn't really for me. Yeah, but maybe our perception of who you are um, is really just a false one. Maybe it's not, that's not really you, that we've built up the God for us that we have always wanted, that we've kind of, like a Build-A-Bear, built our own God, and, and that's the one that we think our, our most comfortable worship. I, I pray that you would mess with us in that, challenge us, and for those of us who are watching or listening or here today who are feeling like I've lost faith in God, I'm losing faith in God, I'm walking away from it, would you then open us up to the possibility that maybe we're walking away from something that never really was true in the first place and help us to walk towards something a little bit more true to who you are and what we can put our hopes in, in you. So give us the wisdom to know what to do with this. Courage to act on it in your name. Amen.